everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us on a Deep Dive Tuesday and Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to all. Uh, Today, we are going to dig into the not-so-romantic topic of industrial policy, although I guess it depends on how you feel about it. For some people out there, it might be just the perfect thing. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, get your your heart thumping. Um, Because it does kind of seem like it's all the rage right now with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, and, you know, of course, the infrastructure law, which, you know, is a law. I still can't believe it. Um, Anyway, just take a listen to this part of President Biden's State of the Union speech. Tonight, I'm announcing new standards require all construction materials used in federal infrastructure projects to be made in America. Great political applause line, but is it all that? We're going to talk about industrial policy today with Derek Thompson. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, also the host of The Ringer's Plain English podcast. Derek, welcome back to the pod. Great to be here. Thank you so much. So look, for those not as versed in in government policy writ large as, as you are, what is exactly industrial policy? I'm glad you asked. And I'm glad you asked on Valentine's Day because I think industrial policy <laughs> is romantic. I think it's, you know, okay. what is romance? Romance is about the development mm. and growth of two, I guess for uh, some people, more than two people. That's what industrial yes. policy is all about. It's about the development and growth of the economy, typically the manufacturing and construction parts of the economy. And just as there is a bevy of philosophies about how to grow one's uh, personal relationship, there's also a bevy of philosophies about how to grow an economy. Uh, some people say that what we should have is free trade. We should simply bring down our borders, have no tariffs, uh, buy from anywhere that makes the cheapest stuff, outsource all of our manufacturing to wherever makes the cheapest stuff. And to a certain extent, that has been the philosophy of the U.S. government for the last 30, 40 years. Sometimes this has been called free trade, sometimes open trade, sometimes neoliberalism. But a couple of things have happened in the last few years that have made a lot of people in both the Republican and Democratic Party question that philosophy. They're starting to think, well, look, we can't necessarily trust China the way that we thought we could as a political actor or as an economic actor. Um, and we also realize that we're not making enough critical stuff here. We're not making enough houses. We're not building enough clean energy. We're not making enough semiconductors, computer chips in the U.S. Maybe we should have a theory for an industrial policy to build stuff right here in an America, right? Pull it into the relationship between the federal government and private uh, manufacturers and construction companies. So industrial policy is romantic and it's particularly romantic uh, in 2023. You you were just fast on your feet, man. That was amazing. That was uh, that was. I'm whew. and I'm gonna fully lean into this. So since we're talking about relationships and our relationships with other countries when it comes to trade, help me understand where this fits in compared to other fun political science terms like protectionism and isolationism. Mm. So isolationism is the idea that the U.S. should not do any business with any other. Uh, with any other country's companies, uh, to a certain extent, it, it, it's, it, it also sometimes is the way that we talk about foreign policy. So isolationism, meaning the U.S. shouldn't get involved in foreign wars. Protectionism is this idea that the U.S. should fundamentally have, let's call it an exclusive relationship, with people that, that <laughs> manufacture stuff within the supply chain in the U.S. So, for example, we need to build houses in the U.S. Well, what do you need for houses? You need lumber. You need plastic. And you just heard President Biden say, we only want a 
American companies to make that lumber. We want an exclusive relationship between home builders and American lumber companies. So who's against exclusivity in relationships? Well, <laughs> I am to a certain extent. I hope my wife is listening to this part of the episode. Um, I, basically, the problem with exclusivity in trade is that if you're a home builder and you're trying to build homes in a really expensive part of the country, Miami, New York, San Francisco, houses are already expensive. And if you say that you can't buy any lumber from a cheap uh, lumber supplier in, let's say, Canada, well, that means that the price of those homes is going up, which means that the price of those homes for, say, middle-class Americans that want to buy a place in San Francisco, their prices are now going up. So there's all sorts of ways in which protectionism and buy American policies tends to raise the price of that which is most critical to the U.S. economy. And I don't think that's such a great outcome. All right, I, I don't have it in me to continue with the whole relationship thing. I'm just I'm not I'm not swift enough for that. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw this out there, Derek, and I and I want to get your thought. Yes, we need industrial policy, and yes, in theory, Buy America might be a fine idea, but in reality, it's just a cheap political sop that presidents for 40 years have been using. Yeah, it is a cheap political stop. I would actually, maybe I'd flip it. I'd say it's an expensive, expensive political stop. Right. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a cheap political stop uh, in terms of political capital. It, it's, it doesn't cost a lot of political capital to say, well, you know, we want to help American jobs. We want to help American companies. That's great. I want to help American jobs and American companies. The question is, how do we best do it? So you think about something like baby formula. Right. I think a lot of people listening and maybe both of you remember last year we had a very critical baby formula shortage uh, after there was a bacteria outbreak at a Michigan plant. Well, how did the U.S. have a shortage of something as critical as baby formula? The short answer is that we have a protectionist buy America policy when it comes to infant formula. We don't allow American parents who, for whatever reason, are into, you know, Danish baby formula or Netherlands baby formula to buy stuff from Europe. So if there is a critical crisis at a node in the U.S. supply chain, like, for example, in Michigan, and that node is blown out, it means that suddenly we don't have a resilient supply of this incredibly important thing, baby formula. This is one of the reasons why I think something like friend shoring, that is creating supply chains among your allies, among countries that you can trust, is a much better way to create a resilient network of supplying that which is most important to a country. You know, Kai was just talking about how it's political sop and it's been going on forever and ever. You know, when I was listening to that clip, it reminded me of, of from President Biden's State of the Union. It reminded me of, of a speech, which I just looked up, of President Trump, who was candidate Trump at the time, in June of 2016, giving a speech on his jobs plan. And here's what he said. It will be American steel that will fortify America's crumbling bridges. It will be American steel that sends our skyscrapers soaring into the sky. It will be American steel that rebuilds our inner cities. Everybody says this. What's different this time, mm. if at all? Those are beautiful words, but it's important to go back to 2017, 18, 19, and look at what actually happened to the global steel market. What happened is that President Trump imposed tariffs to protect manufacturing workers who not only built washing machines, but also made stuff like steel and aluminum. And he did this in part, or Republicans said they did this in part, to help uh, uh, people who worked in these companies and help people who were disproportionately in Republican-leaning counties. But what happened? Well, the policy actually backfired. 
we raised tariffs for steel. That means that other countries had retaliatory tariffs for steel. That meant that American companies who made steel and used to profitably export their steel to other countries, suddenly they faced these high tariffs and it hurt their business. So a policy that was designed to help businesses and workers heavily concentrated in GOP-leaning counties ended up hurting those very same firms and employees. That's one of the many ways in which I think protectionism and buy American policies can flip around on us, can boomerang around on us and hurt the very people we are trying to protect. Let me let me take this global here for a second. And, and you talked about uh, this a little bit, but I want to go to the last line of your piece in The Atlantic, which I recommend everybody and which we'll put on the show page. You talk about what we want out of industrial policy, which is a growing economy and thus growing well-being for everybody. And you say to win an abundance of well-being, America needs abundant help. And yet in things like the Inflation Reduction Act, where we put in. Uh, policies that uh, just, for instance, uh, will incentivize electric car manufacturing in this country and some other things. We did that, and then the Europeans got incredibly pissed off at us, and they're still angry at us. And I guess my question is, how do we um, build domestically while at the same time not annoying our international partners or would-be international partners? It's a wonderful question, and it's a question that doesn't have an easy answer, but I have a hypothesis that I'll throw out. Okay. I don't like buy American policies. I don't like rules that say that companies have to buy their parts from specific companies. I don't like that at all. What I do like are subsidies for both businesses and consumers. So for example, the US has a subsidy for anyone who wants to buy an electric car. I think that's a neat idea. The U.S. can also subsidize the development of geothermal energy production and new nuclear fusion technology and new cheaper ways to build really efficient solar panels and wind turbines. I think that's fantastic. That's pushing technology forward. That's encouraging innovation. Buy America policies sometimes do the exact opposite. They discourage innovation because if there's a really, really innovative company in, let's say, France, that's building you know, really cheap, sensational, uh, biodegradable plastics. And you're telling American home builders that they are not allowed mm. to buy this sensational product from Paris. That's not pushing global technology forward. That's hindering progress. So I, the way that I fall in industrial policy is subsidies for consumers, cool. Subsidies for businesses, often very useful. Buy American policies, get out of here. <laughs> So, and I have to say, Kai, you really missed an opportunity on that, you know, American partners thing earlier. Oh, yeah, whatever. I guess I did. See, I just, I don't have that. I don't, I don't have that gene, man. I, and, and that's why my wife hate val- hates Valentine's Day, because I just, I don't deliver. But that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, Derek, so then if these are the things that you like and don't like when it comes to, to these policies, where, where does the Biden administration plan fit uh, in terms mm. of advantages, disadvantages, what you think is going to work, what they're actually doing that might not work. I'm a cheerleader for so much of this new industrial policy. Uh, One of the pieces that I wrote last year that got the biggest and best response was this piece where I called for what I call an abundance agenda. That so many of the problems that America faces are problems of scarcity. We don't build enough homes. We have fewer physicians per capita, fewer general practitioners per capita than almost any country in the OECD. Uh, We have a shortage of housing, a shortage of access to medicine. We have a shortage of uh, uh, consumers 
construction, in the green economy to decarbonize our grid. We need fresh thinking for how to create an abundance of that which is most critical for a productive American life. And I do think the Biden administration is doing that. I do think they have an abundance approach. But as I say at the end of this piece, and Kai read the conclusion already, but I'll repeat it, to win an abundance of well-being, we need an abundance of help. We need to remember that there are a, a ton of other countries that are working on manufacturing stuff in clever, fantastic ways, and we need to give our companies access to those markets, just as we hope our companies have access to their markets. It's good to be able to trade. It's good to be able to build comparative advantage. I just don't want us to put up these kind of walls that say, uh, you know, company X, you have to buy from, you know, one of a small handful of suppliers that might not be very good at doing what they're doing. That doesn't seem to be the, that doesn't seem to me to be a path toward abundance. Derek Thompson is a staff writer at The Atlantic and host of The Ringer's Plain English podcast. Thank you so much. Sure, great to have Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, listening to that Biden clip really did bring back some of these Trump speeches. And I was just like, this, yeah. this sounds so familiar yep. over and over and over again. Look, politicians love this, right? And and they should because that's their job. But I'm not sure they're doing the thing that's best for the American economy, as, as Derek said. I, I completely agree with every word he said. Well, I, I would be curious yeah. as to whether the folks listening agree with yeah. everything that Derek says or what Kai says. Um, no, he said it. I'm just, I'm just tagging along. I'm, I'm aligning myself with his remarks. <laughs> what, what, what is it that they say? I, I like to. I, what is it? I, I identify myself with his remarks. What are they saying, Congress? Come on, you're in Washington. Uh, I try not to listen to them as much as well, at all fair. possible. Anyway, um, yeah, what Derek said. That's what in St. Louis, we say we're, we're co-signing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. But what do you all think of an industrial policy comeback? You can send us your thoughts. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us those thoughts and feelings, especially if you can make a nice little punny reference to relationships in there, uh, at makemesmart at marketplace.org. And we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy.
News. Kimberly, go. Yeah, I've been trying to channel Nancy Marshall Genzer all day with the puns, because oh, for yeah. those of you who don't have the pleasure of knowing her in real life, she is a big puns person. Um, but anyway, so first I'll go with my related to uh, Valentine's Day mm -hmm. story, uh, because I'm clearly on theme today, and you know I love a good theme. Uh, but a negative one, unfortunately, which is about romance scammers. The Federal Trade Commission, usually around this time of year, puts out sort of a warning about romance scams and all the people who prey on folks via dating apps, via social media sites, all sorts of other things. Last year, sorry, in 2022, nearly 70,000 people reported a romance scam and reported losses hit a staggering $1.3 billion. The median reported loss was $4,400. And just, you know, be careful out there. Um, the FTC lists their favorite lies by the numbers, as in the lies um, most often reported when people are reporting these scams. And I should say that these scams are often vastly underreported because people are embarrassed. You know, they don't want to say that they've been scammed or believe that they've been scammed. But it's stuff like, I or someone close to me is sick or hurt or in jail and I need money to help, you know, deal with it. Other, apparently 18% of the scammers say that they're going to teach you how to invest. Another 18%, and this is a classic, I'm in the military far away, or I need help mm. with an important delivery. We've never met, but let's talk about marriage, you know, <laughs> all these other things. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it sounds funny, but, you know... <sighs> There are a lot of folks who are really struggling with, with loneliness. Yeah. And, you know, when you're spending a lot of time alone and, and maybe don't have the sort of social and community support that would provide a, a check and the, the healthy skepticism on stuff like that, it can it can be easy to, to fall prey to things like that. So that's, that's piece number one. Uh, piece number two, completely unrelated, uh, Nikki Haley has announced her 2024 White House run. So the first official challenger to Donald Trump in the Republican primary, which, you know, for my interest, means the first official money challenger for the Republican yeah. Party. Because one of the very interesting things about um, Trump is that he has had the Republican donor base, especially mm -hmm. small donors, on lock pretty much since he came uh, into the presidency and, and won the primary. Uh, and this has been so hard for the Republicans to sort of pull rank and file Republicans away from him when it comes to sort of small dollar donations, although the bigger donors seem to be moving away and are very annoyed with Trump for making them lose the presidency and, and you know, the yeah. Congress and, and all the other things. One of the interesting things, because I watched her promotional video for announcing her run, one of the very interesting things I thought was that she's using a Democratic talking point in her own campaign, which is that Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Like she says it out loud and she was like, we have to change that. And, you know, she's using that to say that the establishment Republicans are not enough. And she leans into South Carolina, really targeted attacks on issues of race and things like that. And uh, it's going to be fascinating because this is, um, 
I, I mean, obviously, we expect Pence to join mm-hmm. on the Republican side, but it would be so fascinating if the first woman president ended up being a Republican, given their record recently on women's issues. Mm-hmm. It would indeed. It would indeed. Uh, okay, just uh, super quick from me, just sort of as the flip side of the coin about industrial policy that, that Derek and Kimberly and I were talking about. You can have government industrial policy and you can have corporate policy. Uh, there is another part of the industrial equation in this uh, economy, though, and that is labor, the workers. A- and I note today that Tesla workers at a Tesla plant in Buffalo are going public with their campaign to form a union, specifically about 800 people uh, who develop, and this is from the New York Times, the driver assistance software for uh, Tesla cars. Um, uh, and, and here's the line of the day from, uh, one of the members of the group. It's calling it's Tesla workers United is what they're calling yourselves. Here's the quote. We are only asking for a seat in the car that we helped build, which is, uh, really yeah. smart, really clever, but also they've got a point, right? Tesla workers, uh, for years now have had, um, challenges with the conditions with over racism, uh, in their factories. Uh, and it's been a really challenging place to work. And I think it says something that they are now going to try to unionize in this moment where, as we've talked about on this podcast, um, unions do have some public support behind them. There you go. Indeed. And I will point folks back to our show on Mm -hmm. recent union efforts, which Mm -hmm. uh, helped me have a much better understanding of of where we sit and all that. Uh, Okay, that's it for the news fix. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, after our recent conversation on tiddlywinks, uh, we were left with some questions, and Heather sent us this. Good morning. My name is Heather Ann, and I'm calling from San Mateo, California. And to answer Kimberly's question, the show she was trying to think of is Lois and Brom. And the song you were mm. trying to remember that Tiddlywinks reminded you of is Skidamarinky-dinky-dink, Skidamarinky-doo, I love you. Yes, that was anyway, it. Anyway, I hope that helps. Thanks for making us smart. Bye. That wow. was exactly it. Thank you. Wow, I have I, love I have you no in the morning I have and no in the afternoon. Fascinating. Yeah, I think it's you know it was it was a show like a kid show yeah. growing up and things. It was very cute. Um, oh, man. But yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. And now I'm gonna have to go down a YouTube rabbit hole and find clips of it. Fair <laughs> enough. All right, so we uh, talked, I think, uh, a little bit about um, reducing household clutter, which was uh, something that Kimberly Adams spent uh, mm-hmm. a good part of her recent vacation doing, which I don't think is actually a vacation, I'm but still maybe doing. that's just me still doing. Um, anyway, here is uh, one person's response. Hi, Make Me Smarties. This is James from Oakland, California. I appreciated your Tuesday shout out to buy nothing for reducing household clutter. And I wanted to share one additional reason why it has worked so well for me. I had a sizable pile of personal slash heirloom items I felt emotionally attached to that just kept using up storage space. I got to thinking about how many years of usefulness or happiness that someone else could have been getting out of them rather than collecting dust. Now, when we send these items out into the world, I have a much better hope that someone else might carry forward the love for them. I still have a few items, like my baby clothes that my daughter has sworn she wants to be able to use someday, but we've been able Mm -hmm. to reclaim a ton of storage space and I will be turning it into a home office and exercise space. Yay. Yay. 
Yay. Good for you. That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah, it's been interesting as I've been like individually giving items away to people. Often they'll specifically tell me how they plan on using them. Like I had um, a microphone that my brother gave to me because it you know, is a sort of heavier duty microphone. And he was like, I'm not going to use it, but you use microphones. I'm like, I actually have enough microphones. And so yesterday (laughs) the guy was like, (laughs) the guy who I gave it to was just like, I have a podcast and I'm going to be using it for my podcast. And I was like, good for you. You you know, it's nice. Yeah, for sure. All right. Before we go, we are going to leave you with this week's answer to the make me smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew, but later found out you were wrong about. And we're going to stay with the Valentine's theme and get our answer this week from Michelle Jacoby, a professional matchmaker and dating coach here in Washington, D.C. What's something I thought I knew, but later found out I was wrong about? I used to think that finding love was all about romance and chemistry. Just follow your heart and you'll find the right person and live happily ever after. Well, what I've learned over the years is it's not quite as easy as that. (laughs) It's really, really important when you're looking to find your life partner that you use your head. You've got to be more pragmatic. If you take the time to choose wisely and really use both your heart and your head when you're looking for love, you'll choose a partner who you can love and enjoy for the rest of your life. That, I mean, I get it, but it does seem a little unromantic. Or am I just... I don't being... know. I think that's very romantic. Okay. All right. Okay. All righty. Did you not use your head at all? I don't know. I don't know. I'm a, I'm, look, I'm a gut person to begin with, so... Oh, really? Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Okay. 100%. Hmm. I don't know. All right. Well, the rest of you weigh in. I'm yeah. curious. Head or heart? What 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 should be the guiding guiding force when it comes to love? Uh, or you can also share if there's something that you've been wrong about lately. We want to know. Uh, send us your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Berg. Seeker Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonia Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado on the other side of the glass from me over there. Mishin Siguan is going to mix it down later. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer, who we love, is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. We love everybody. All the hearts on Valentine's Day. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending, like, all my tips. I was definitely spending, like, $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. 
Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.